Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Champions Interview Series. My name is Jerome Bowen. I'm class of 2006. My pronouns are he and him, and I will be your host for the day. Joining us today is Zaya Bomani. His pronouns are he and him. He's from the class of 2006. Welcome, Zaya. Thank you for having me. It is absolutely a pleasure. Now, for all of you, The Champions is an interview series that focuses on Stanford alumni who are championing diversity and inclusion as members of the LGBT community. I am so looking forward to this interview. Talking to Zaya today, we've had a couple conversations leading up to this, and so this is like a long time coming, and I'm just really excited to have you. Um, for those of you that are joining us, please know that um, we're gonna have a great time today just hearing a little bit more about Zaya. The interview will run about 20 minutes, and then we're gonna have 10 minutes for Q&A afterwards. Uh, please go ahead and stay on mute during the interview. But if you have a question while we're going, feel free to throw it in the chat at any point. We're moderating in the chat throughout. And we are happy to, um, at the end, we'll take all of your questions and um, you know get into it. I want to hear a little bit about more about your Stanford experience. Um, you graduated in 2006. So tell me all the things getting to that point. Yeah, um, yeah, so I was class of 06, 06, um, but I was a super senior, um, mostly because I went abroad and it had nothing to do with my major. So I ended up taking an extra two quarters and officially left the farm in 2007. Um, I wasn't actually really out yet when I was at Stanford, so I wasn't involved in a lot of the LGBTQ community at the time, but I was slowly, there are some little um, snippets here and there that um, slowly led me to be where I am today in terms of my sense of self. Amazing. So you got your bachelor's in history. Um, and then you went on to law school at Santa Clara University. Is that, um, was that the plan? Was that the original plan? No, um, not at all. Like if you'd asked me, I would have never thought about law school, um, but take it back. I was at Stanford, I was working in Meyer Library and that was before it became a green pasture. So I'm definitely dating myself, um, but I was working at the academic technology lab there. And so when I was looking for jobs uh, and getting my resume together, um, career counseling said, oh, look for instructional technology. So I was like, okay, instructional technology means academia. Uh, I want to get, you know, still have access to JSTOR, which is probably a really nerdy thing to say. Um, so I was looking for jobs specifically in academia, and I found I was able to get a place, a job at Santa Clara University. Um, and what some people might not know is that if you work for university, you can end up going to school for free um, there. So any of their um, degree programs. So for Santa Clara, it was two years. And after two years, I was looking at my options and thought, okay, I could either get an MBA or a law degree. Um, you know, I like business and had my own business. That's always been an idea of mine, but I was really passionate about social justice. And I knew I could have a business without an MBA, but in order to bring access to the law to people who historically and continue to be denied access to justice, I'd have to get a JD, right, to practice. So that's how I ended up going to law school. Okay, so let me let me pause real quick because y'all, if you didn't hear those hustle tips, like we got two of them right there, like major keys. First and foremost, I don't know about y'all, but I loved having access to JSTOR. So you're not a nerd, it's not a nerdy thing to say. And if you work for a university after you graduate, you still get that access. <laughs> like that was like, hey oh, that was like when you said that, I was like, oh my God, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> and and then the other thing is like, you know, you can get your Grad school paid for if you work at a university. Crew, look, those of you that are thinking about career switches or thinking about or coming out of college and going in, university, it might be a good look for you. So Zay, you were able to travel while you're at Sanford um, and at Santa Clara. Tell me a little bit more about that. 
Yeah. Um, so what led me to being a super senior at Stanford, um, I went to study abroad in Japan uh, as part of the SCTI program, the Center for Stanford Center for Technology and Innovation, and that's in Kyoto. Uh, I was a little bit of a Japanophile. I've been studying Japanese. I was into anime. Like in high school, I started the anime club in my school. And so, yeah. Uh, when I came to Stanford, I was studying Japanese, and I was a history major, so I really had no business being uh, in SCTA other than I just wanted to be there. Um, nothing to do with technology and innovation. I took the religious classes, you know, culture and identity. Um, but I was just really excited to be there and realize how bad my Japanese actually was. Um, but, you know, it was so cool. Um, I also was part of VIA, which at the time was called Volunteers in Asia. And through that program, I was able to host um, I was at Stanford. We hosted students um, from Japan and it was going to be Thailand as well, but that's when COVID 1.0 or SARS, its grandpa, came around. So we weren't able to host the Thai students, but in the summer we were able to go visit them. So that was pretty cool. Um, and then in law school, you know, fast forward, then I, since I knew I wanted to do law and social justice, um, I was just taking part in a lot of the um, study abroad programs doing public interest law and international public law. So I was in The Hague, the Netherlands, for a couple of weeks. And that, so the big year, really, my second year of law school, um, that summer, I was in The Hague for criminal law, uh, criminal justice. And then I was in London for the Olympics, which was pretty cool. That's 2012. Right before that, I was in Geneva, um, learning about public international rights. Uh, the next year, I, was, I did El Salvador. We spent a week there just learning about the history of the US and how it's kind of led to a lot of disruption there, unfortunately. I also went to Cuba, and that was pre um, opening of you know relations and then closing again when Trump came. So that was kind of an interesting time. Um, and then my last semester of law school, I was planning on you know taking the bar classes I needed to take in order to pass the bar. Um, so that was what I was, you know, my plan. And then one of my professors approached me and said, hey, you know, we have an open, you know, we have a position at UNESCO in Cambodia and another place. If you're interested, you know, we usually send people there. And I was like, okay, <laughs> when do I leave? Um, because yeah, bar classes or Cambodia. Um, that was not a hard choice at all. Um, and so I, I really want to pause with the Cambodia experience because that really was, this was 2014. Um, and it was really where like I'd been learning a little bit about myself and gender identity. And I actually had unofficially started transitioning, but Cambodia was really where I felt um, like fully myself, like fully queer, the fully queer experience that I, you know, I had within me. Um, you know, I'd been to Thailand, so I was kind of familiar with Southeast Asia, but Cambodia was really the first time where I was um, an average-sized adult male. And I know it sounds silly to say, but like, I just felt physically in my body much more comfortable than I'd ever been anywhere else. Instead of wearing extra, extra, extra small or, you know, grabbing the boys, going into the boys section, I could wear a large in men's. Um, and it was also the first time where among everybody else, I was average skin tone. Um, you know, granted, they were uh, Cambodian and I was black, but you know, just like not physically standing out so much was also just, a, you know, another comfort or relief for me. And, you know, I was a foreigner in a foreign place. So I had that uh, excuse for why I wasn't 100% fitting in. And it, and it made sense, right? Rather than like, oh, you're queer. or Oh, you're just whatever. Um, so I felt, I felt more comfortable just being different because I was foreign and not because I was, you know, LGBTQ or, or trans. Yeah. It's so crazy how impactful these tra traveling experiences can be. And it's, quite common, you know, um, just like hearing that experience and hearing like there, that, that there's a reason for feeling different, right? Like it was the first time that you felt like normal, but also the, the difference that you felt was also the, like made sense because you're in a foreign country, you're not any of these, like from any of these backgrounds, any of these cultures. Um, 
I want to hear a little bit more about that, uh, that piece of figuring out who you are and how you felt when you came out. Sorry, yeah, I was going to say, you know, obviously I felt better when I came out, right? As most people usually say, like, there's, you know, fear there, but um, at the end, it all worked out. Um, so I was in Cambodia working at UNESCO. I was still presenting at work, super femme, you know, high heels, um, skirt, hair, and all that done, makeup. Um, so, you know, at weekends, I would kind of go in my guy mode, and I had girl in guy mode. And so when I came out, I think people were probably shocked because they didn't know, if outside of work, if they, or people who were in my work probably didn't know. Um, a lot of people were really shocked um, just because, like, the transformation was so, I think, it was very impressive. Um, <laughs> and so, um, but a really funny thing is, I, I wasn't actually particularly femme most of my life until I realized I was actually transgender and I was able to feel more comfortable about being feminine. Um, you know, I didn't have the right word to describe um, how I felt, but um, before I realized I was trans, I just thought I didn't feel right being identified as a girl or a woman. Um, but trans made so much more sense. And so I said, okay, I can pretend to like play the role of femme and dress up and that's really just clothes to me. Um, so in Cambodia, you know, being there was really just overall supportive, um, the people there, like even my landlords, they didn't really speak a lot of English, but there was a moment of acknowledgement where I was like carrying furniture or like, I think some of my, some of my luggage, my mom was visiting up the stairs. And my landlord's wife was like, oh, strong boy or strong man or something like that. And I was like, oh, it's so nice. Like, you know, we didn't really speak a whole lot, but she could acknowledge, she knew that there was something about my gender that she's like, okay, some masculine and maleness in there to acknowledge. And so um, I definitely have dreams about going back. It was just such a great experience. I made good friends there. And, um, you know, I always had said in college, I wish I could just go somewhere where no one knows me and start afresh. And I, I didn't plan it, but that's literally what I ended up doing. So um, it was like full circle for me in many ways. That's incredible. I mean, it actually, it seems to be a more and more common experience for LGBTQ people, like being able to explore their identities when they're in a new place, like new country or move to a new city, um, whether that's in college or, or in travels. I'm, I'm really glad to hear that you had that experience and that it was affirmed, right, by people outside who didn't know what you're going through that like, saw you and it just, you know, you really, it, it's beautiful to see that you just fit. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about how you identify now. Yeah, um, so I mean, now I, you know, if I had to check off boxes or fill out a form, I'll, I'll mark man or trans masculine or trans man. Um, but really I feel more like bi-gender or gender fluid. Um, and I really feel I have two strong gender identities where I have like my girl mode and I have my guy mode or boy mode. And I've always had that since I was as early as three because I know there's some certain clothes that I wore and I look at pictures and I was three years old in those pictures. So. Um, that's always been part of who I am, even if I didn't have the full scope of language to describe it. But, you know, for simplicity's sake, right now, I just say man, trans, transgender man, just um, uh, because society is not really ready for me yet, my full self. So <laughs> I guess, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I actually want to shift gears a little bit. Like you, you mentioned that, like going back and looking at pictures of yourself, and it's, it always makes me think about how fortunate we are to have had technology in our lives, right? To be able to go back and look at some of those pictures, but um, things have changed so much since, um, like in such a short period of time. For instance, we were in college, you and I overlapped. We were in college when Facebook started. We were in college when, um, you know, when uh, social media became something that mattered. Um, Wikipedia was catching on and people were being able to use that more often um, or being able to um, 
like not having everything documented, not having everything online in the same way, um, even just using the internet. Um, can you speak a little bit about how technology has helped you and helped shape, um, help you figure out your identity? Yeah, uh, technology has been really powerful, um, just as you described. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's really a facilitator of information sharing, right? Like we want technology to get more information so we can either make better decisions, make right decisions, right? And that's kind of why I joked really about JSTOR, but like literally I wanted access to information, which so much of it is hidden behind, you know, firewalls and ivory towers and paywalls. So um, as part of what I do in my career to sort of break that, you know, break that loose. But for me, I've used technology just yeah, to get more information, to learn more about the work, to get the language to describe what I was going through and how I thought of myself. Um, you know, I'm a millennial, just as you said, we, you know, what it's like before, you know, the pre-information age. And I'm really excited to just, for this newer generation because so much of this information that I learned in college, post-grad, right, they're knowing by age 10 or 12. So they're like, advanced and well beyond you know where i was at that point so i'm actually really excited um but at the same time you know, information is powerful you know the corny cliche and so you see it being limited and controlled and you know you think about like slaves being forbidden to read and right because that was access to information right and now we kind of give away all of our email in order to get 10 gigabytes free because you know these companies want our information our data right we say data but it's really just your life it's your life information um, and so I just, you know, think it's important that as we get access to more information, we have to keep fighting to have that information be free and open, but at the same time, just be aware of like, who else, who else is getting access to the information that we share. Um, you know, I was using LiveJournal when I went abroad and it was from there I sort of did the rabbit hole, um, learning first about CrossDress. I, you know, I wanted to journal to document my, my time in Kyoto and from there I, you know, somehow clicked on drag kings, cross-dressers, and then somehow navigated my way to um, transgender people and transgender men. And like, that's where it all clicked for me because I had so much access to information, even on an old trusty, you know, platform like LiveJournal, rest in peace. <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, but it's, it's so um, like impactful, right? And it, 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 it sounds like even you know each of the different experiences you had abroad had such profound um, impact on your life. Um, you talked a little bit about finding um, like gender identity in your time in Kyoto, um, and you had said, um, I, uh, "You'll have to help me with this," but like it was something along the lines of like talking about that gender binary, right, and mm -hmm. what um, what that meant for you. And um, I know you said you kind of talked a little bit about girl mode, girl mode versus guy mode. Um, can you can you expand on that a little bit? Uh, yeah. So, you know, I've always, for me, my you know my gender has I've always had two very strong genders, right? Like I said, I can be very feminine, um, and I didn't really like it before. But once I identified as trans, I recognized that all that awkward feeling that I had about being feminine was you know, I saw it as part of who I was, but people expected that to be all of who I was um, and that I had to perform a certain way and all these expectations and things about it. So once I realized I was trans, it wasn't that I couldn't be feminine or I wasn't feminine anymore. It's more of, well, it's only part. And I've only been able to like live at most 50% of 100% of me. And so, um, you know, I think a lot of us who are queer LGBTQ, we realize that because we don't really fit into these binaries so well, we're more free to explore really. Well, I'm already an outcast, so I might as well just explore and see what's out there, see what I can be, right? 
Um, so that's kind of how my identity has been for me. It's because I don't really fit in and I've been able to just be, be more freer. So I can be, you know, a gay trans guy and still love makeup, still do my eyebrows. And then if I want to put on a purple wig, heels and look really cute, right? Um, so, you know, I, I, I realize that I don't fit perfectly into any one identity. I mean, I'm still trying. I don't know if I look particularly masculine, but, you know, I probably need to get some voice lessons to drop my voice down because I get a little... Uh, sound a little stereotypically gay, but you know, it's cool. I embrace that. But um, sometimes, you know, it means I don't pass all the time. And that's just part of, um, this isn't part of my journey and, and growing up. Right. And that's what it is, right? It's about your journey and how you identify and how you feel comfortable in your skin. For those of you who are not watching and you're listening on the podcast, Zaya's eyebrows are popping. When I tell you, like, look, we're going to take it back to what was it, 2020 when they were on fleek? <laughs> we, Zaya's out here. Um, but um, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to shift gears uh, and, and talk a little bit about some of your professional work, but we're going to open it up to the chat um, in just a bit. So those of you that have, that are watching, that have questions, please go ahead and throw them in the chat. We've already got a few and I'm excited about those. But um, you worked at the National LGBTQ Task Force in Washington, D.C., where you helped work on where you helped where you worked on the u.s supreme court and appellate cases and developed policies to defend the rights for lgbtq people in employment schools criminal law and healthcare settings i would love to hear more about that experience and then what you did um, after that sure yeah uh, the task force was my first official job out of law school um i did some like work at the law school but um right after i graduated but dc um national lgbtq task force uh, you know, at the time it, it was called, well, it was earlier called the Chocolate City. At that time, it was like the Chocolate Chip City. You know, maybe it's not like the Rice Pudding City, but um, it was still, you know, coming from California, which is at most 8% Black. It was um, just a really good, great experience. Again, just kind of like Cambodia. I just physically felt more comfortable in the space. I didn't stand out as much. Um, it, even though it was colder and rainier than California, but, you know, certainly. But if I, I had to move somewhere else, you know, I would definitely, DC would be up on my top of the list. Um, while I was there, I did reproductive justice. Um, I worked with um, through a fellowship program, which is now called If, When, and How, and that stands for if you want to be a parent, when you want to be a parent, and how you want to be a parent should be your decision entirely. Um, and so I kind of got thrust into that movement. It wasn't something I was involved in much in law school, but when my professors was connected. So yeah, another tip for those of you in undergrad, connect with your professors, let them know what you're interested in because they know so many people. And if you know a job opportunity or fellowship comes through their way and they know that am I aligned with your interests, they'll send it to you. That's what happened with me. I had a professor in law school who's like, hey, this sounds like a great fit of many of your interests. And I looked into it. I realized, yeah, RJ really is an intersection of so many issues. Um, you know, policing, whether your kid comes back home at the end of the day, right? Like that's reproductive justice. Um, so I was doing that work specifically around uh, the intersection of reproductive justice and trans rights and LGBT rights more uh, broadly. And I got to build the, um, the organization's RJ movement, really, like the work that they did in that space. Um, and, you know, thanks to the Black women who sort of created that movement as a response to the reproductive rights movement, which is really just for, you know, cis white um het women who cared about abortion only uh rj was really just about looking more broadly what does it take to have a family what does family mean it doesn't have to be blood relations queer folk we know chosen family is so big and important so it just all so much of it just really intersected for me when i was working at the task force and as you said i worked on some uh, supreme court cases that were related to abort um abortion access obviously but also birth control and you know the religious right to use of saying well i don't believe in birth control 
you know, the same kind of arguments they've been using and continue to use about, um, I don't believe in gay marriage, I don't believe in trans kids. Um, seeing those arguments, as we see, literally see it right now, the same arguments going against Roe, they're using against trans kids. And so um, it was really important work at that intersection because so much of the same groups were coming after all of us. Yeah. And that, the experience definitely made me more of a radical <laughs> uh, you know, activist in, in, that, in that sense. Oh my God, that's incredible. What, um, where did that take you from, um, from Supreme Court to RJ? Where, where'd you go from there? Yeah, so from there, um, I went to the ACLU of Illinois, and so that was more traditional um, impact litigation where you have, you know, you know what you want to do, you have your agenda, and you're just looking for the perfect client, and you match with them, and like, all right, we're going to do this thing. So it was very different than uh, the RJ movement, which is really a ground-up approach. This was like a, a you know, total top-down, we're the lawyers, we know what's best because we know what the future should be like, and we're just going to find people who are going to take us there. Um, so it wasn't really the best fit for me. And then I'm a plant apparently, so I need the sun. So there's not a whole lot of that in Chicago. So that really affected my, you know, my mood and overall well-being in addition to just not being the right work experience or the right um, work culture and fit. So I came back to California, um, you know, took a couple of years off to just sort of process that experience and um, was able to get involved in environmental justice work, which any justice is pretty much all the same as just social justice, environmental justice, racial justice, reproductive justice. We're all trying to do the same thing, right? We just want a better world for all of us. So EJ um, flowed pretty well with what I was doing before, focusing on the environment and the environment, not just, you know, the parks that you go to on the weekend, but everywhere you live, work, play, and pray. So that's literally everywhere. Office buildings, if the air is not clean there, you know, if you're exposed to vapor intrusion, where you live, your house, if your apartment's like, you know, a mile away or less from a Superfund site, whether your water is safe that you can drink, whether you have green space to hang out with that's near you, right? Um, all of that is, is part of what environmental justice is about. And that's the work that I'm doing today, um, working with Bay Area groups to, and law students and, and undergrads to get environmental justice here in, in the state. Oh, that's amazing. Um, Hey, we got two more questions um, came through the chat. Allison is, would love to hear a little bit more about your experience with the Olympics because you had all these travel experiences and you kind of dropped that one in there and then moved on. I caught it, Allison caught it too. So give us like a, the, the, quick, the quickie on that one. Um, and then I think we might wrap up because we're going to get hit. We're going to get at time. Okay. Um... Probably not as exciting as you wanted to be, so maybe you might have time for another question. I literally just was there in um, London at the same time the Olympics was happening. <laughs> uh, I was staying in like a repurposed dorm, so they were like um, uh, reporters and things. So I got to hang out with a couple of them. Like we, I don't drink beer at all. I think it's not my palate, but we hung out, drank beers because I guess what British people do or Europeans, and you know, I got to connect with folks while I was there. Um, so it was super busy and super fun, exciting, you know, international city, even more so with, you know, all the world's athletes. But um, I was really there just to work at the Commonwealth Human Rights Initiative and work on um, um, decriminalizing homosexuality. So <laughs> I wasn't super involved in the Olympics. That's what I was doing while I was out there. Amazing. Well, I'm going to, we're going to do one more question that's coming in. Um, sure. And then... Um, we, uh, Zay and I will stay on for just a couple seconds afterwards and we'll talk a little, we'll keep talking, but you know, these are meant to be just snack sized pieces, get you guys palettes wet and want you to learn a little bit more and then come on back for the next time we do this. So um, Zay, I wanna leave everybody with, um, what advice do you have for queer students looking for their first job out of college? Oh, okay. 
Um, so I would say there are two main things. One is just really have a strong sense of self. And what and that means, you know, like who you are, you don't have to know everything about you, but just know like what makes you happy, what doesn't make you happy. Those are really important because those will help you navigate opportunities and people when they come your way. I knew what my passions were. I knew I wanted to just do social justice, just like do good in the world. So that was what helped me make decisions when it's like bar, you know, bar exams or Cambodia, it's like justice versus boring. Um, <laughs> so know what it is you're passionate about. And then two, I would say just do your due diligence when you're looking at jobs. Um, I think a lot of you are all probably way savvier now than I was. That was the naive, like, oh, you know, you say you do good, so you must do good. Look at the organizations that you're applying to. Like, look at the staff roster, right? Do they have pictures of people? Look at the city that they're based in. Does the staff reflect the city that they're in? Um, you know, if there's a position that's open, ask why it's open. Like, did somebody leave it? If so, why? You know, if not, if it's a brand new, why, why is it brand new? Why wasn't it there before, right? Those are just the things, like, in addition to, does it sound like the work itself would be of interest? Like, if you know that, you really want to make sure um, the people that you want to work with are going to support you, right? They're going to build you up rather than just, like, try to tear you down and be a liability. You want to have people, surround yourself with people that can help you stay true to yourself and help you be able to pursue, you know, your next big thing or what it is that you want to do in your life. It's so good. I cannot stress enough how important it is to have the right people around you. And sometimes we don't think about that being as big a deal. Sometimes we like to be everybody's support person and we don't necessarily have those people supporting us. We could do a whole conversation on the importance of the people around you and how they really help shape and influence so many of the things you do. And even reflecting that back of like figuring out what your passions are. Do you know what I mean? There's, there's so many good there. Um, I'm not even going to try to summarize what Zaya just said. Go back and <laughs> just rewind. Y'all can do this. For those of you that are joining us, thank you so much for being here. We're going to send out a recording um, just with all of this amazing information that Zaya just provided. Um, and for everyone else, thank you for joining us for the champions. My name is Jero. Um, our guest, Zaya Bomani, I'm so thankful to have been able to have this conversation with you. Zaya and I are going to stay on and chat for just a second uh, for a little bit afterwards. Um, if you want to stay, please do. Um, but we're going to wrap it up right there. And thank you all so much for being here. We will see you next time for the champions. <laughs>